The Money Show. Other people's money. Well, Other People's Money brought to you by IG Markets. IG Markets South Africa is an authorized financial services provider. CFD losses can exceed your deposits. One of my favorite global economists is a man called Tim Harford. He's an economist, a journalist, a broadcaster. He is author of a huge number of books, including The Next 50 Things That Made the Modern Economy Messy. Um, He sold a million copies of The Undercover Economist. That's the first time I came across him. And I was lucky enough to meet him when I spent some time at the Financial Times in London. Uh, He's a senior columnist at the Financial Times and he also presents Radio Falls, Radio Falls, more or less. And he also has done very well with these various podcast series. He's spoken at TED, PopTech, Sydney Opera House. Oh my goodness me, he is so successful. Well, earlier in 2021, he joined us for other people's money and he spoke about his love for analysing facts and turning them on their head. He started by telling us what makes him get up each and every single day. But apart from my children, you mean? Uh, <laughs> yes. I think it's cu- curiosity is that's the thing that drives yeah. me. And that's the that's the final chapter of, of my book, How to Make the World Add Up, as well. I'm just, I just find the world a very interesting place. There's lots of stuff I don't understand. And I want to understand it better. And that is the single unifying thing that links... My podcast about vaccines, my podcast about technology, my work on economics, uh, my work on jazz, and and the, this new book, which is all about how to think clearly about numbers and how to think clearly about the world. I mean, people are generally scared by numbers. They're generally scared by what's been called the dismal science of economics. They find it boring, I would argue, and uh, they'll never tweak me again, but... If economics is boring, is that more to do with the economists that reflect the economy or is it the, the, the study of economics itself? Well, the economy is, is absolutely fascinating and completely central to our lives. It determines who gets what, why some people are rich, some people are poor. It's all of the things that we do, yeah. all of the things that we make, all of the choices that we have are all bound up in the economy, but economics itself can be quite abstract. Uh, we're, we're talking about hidden forces, stuff that you can't see. And so it, it all tends to suddenly turn into graphs and data and, and theories. And it can be quite hard to place it in the here and now. And one of the challenges that I set people in, in my new book is to, to find a way to link what they're being told in you know, in the statistics in the news headlines with what they see all around them in their everyday life, which is not easy. But if you can combine the two, that's where wisdom comes from, I think. I think you and, and Bill Bryson says nice things about you. He says nobody makes statistics of everyday life more fascinating and enjoyable than Tim Harford. And very few people make lots of very complex subjects more enjoyable than Bill Bryson, other than Tim Harford, of course. Um, <laughs> if, it's, if you, you guys are opposite sides, I think, of the same coin. Bill Bryson has looked to make sense of the world and you're trying to make sense of the world oh it's an enormously flattering comparison bill is the, the most wonderful writer but that, yes that certainly i would aspire to be as good as him and he just has this um this way of just looking at everyday phenomena everyday objects our own bodies uh, a walk in the woods uh, the, the science and the history of the science and, and asking questions. 
And what I'm trying to encourage people to do is to ask smart questions. You, you said a little earlier that we find statistics very intimidating. We find numbers very frightening. And one of the things that I really want people to understand is it's, it's actually not as difficult as you think. Anybody can ask the right sort of questions, the sort of questions that, that really clarify and explain, well, what is, this, what is this number really all about? You don't need to get into super complicated stuff. What, but what, what does make it challenging is you do need to be honest with yourself because we very easily lead ourselves astray with our wishful thinking or our, you know, our political preconceptions. And so it's, it's not the technical statistics that are challenging. Mm. It's that try to find that moment of calm to ask open questions rather than thinking you've, you already know the answer. Does, can data explain everything? I mean, there's a, a great quote, I forget who said it, if you can't measure it, you can't fix it. And my sense is you're going around with cups and spoons and tape measures and digital devices looking to measure everything to get a number to help you explain it. Is that fair? Yeah, I, I think you're right. You can, it can't explain everything. And, and this is one of the things, I, when I said that the challenge is to combine your personal experience with what you're seeing in the statistics. That's, that's what I'm getting at. So our, our personal experience is so rich and vivid and we're seeing everything in, in vivid color and three dimensions and the smells and the tastes and, and we really feel it. Whereas a number on a spreadsheet, it's so mm -hmm. thin, it tells, us, it tells us very little. On the other hand, the spreadsheet, the data... That can tell us about the experiences of 8 billion people. It can track flows of money all around the planet. You can uh, analyze the, uh, the activity of 86 billion neurons in the human brain. So I don't want to dismiss what the data can show us. I don't want to dismiss what the spreadsheet shows us. But I don't want to dismiss personal experience as well. One way of thinking about it is uh, there's that that view you get when you've got your magnifying glass and you look, you look really, really closely at what's in front of you. And then there's the view that the eagle gets flying high above everything. The eagle's a long, long way away. It doesn't see in, in detail because everything's too far away. But the eagle is seeing this huge spread of information. And so this, for me, the statistics are like the eagle and then your personal experience is up close with the magnifying glass. And to say, well, which is true, which is right... Well, they're, they're showing us different things. And if you can combine them together rather than trying to use one in order to disprove the other, if you combine them together, then you're really starting to see the world clearly. Tim Harford, the undercover economist on The Money Show earlier this year. Another snippet from that discussion in a moment. The Money Show. Other people's money. Our guest earlier this year, Tim Harford, who is an economist of global renown. He's a best-selling, multi-million book bestseller, uh, particularly his first one, The Undercover Economist, got attention at the same time as Levitt and Dubner were getting attention for Freakonomics. And uh, Tim Harford is a columnist at the, at the Financial Times, also with his shows, or podcasts and various shows on Radio 4, understands a thing or two about storytelling. And he got to tell us about his love of data and how it affects his life personally and i was asking him as an economist is he similar to the cobbler whose kids have no shoes well my kids have shoes i'm lucky enough that way <laughs> uh, i i've learned enough about financial economics 
to know that I don't have any great insight over the people who do this for a living who have access to data by the millisecond and proprietorial trading platforms and all of all every insight and every piece of information you could have so as far as stock market trading is concerned i keep it pretty simple i just invest in a mix of stocks and bonds and keep it passive and uh, just try and slowly put money in over time i don't try to time the market really boring stuff um of course Sometimes you make make mistakes, you slip up, but I, I generally feel that I I do okay because I know I'm not that good at this. You say keep it passive, which is interesting. Um, so you go for exchange traded funds. You are of the Warren Buffett school um, in his dotage, where he wants you know ninety percent of his money uh, to be put into the S and P five hundred, his wife's inheritance, and uh, uh, the other into other index funds. I mean, it's it, it's he's not interested. He seems to have lost faith in most people's ability to play markets better than markets can play themselves. Yes, I don't think he's lost faith in his own ability to do that. No, no, but uh, he certainly doesn't think that the hedge funds are any good. There was a was a famous bet he had uh, about a decade ago, where he he bet that a, a passive fund invested in the S and P five hundred, just a big big basket of American stocks, mm. that that would outperform a, a selection of hedge funds. And I seem to remember he, he won that bet. Now you could say, well, maybe the hedge funds are unlucky. Maybe if they'd picked a different time, the hedge funds would have been ahead. But it does go to show you can be awfully clever and it doesn't necessarily mean that you'll beat the market. And I know that I'm, I've got no particular insight, no particular way of of knowing what the hot stocks are. Uh, and I'm also, I'm not that interested in trying to follow every detail of the market. The, the, the economy, yes, the market, yeah, maybe not so much. And so, yeah, that's why I try and keep it simple. Um, when, you, when you look at work life and as an economist try to assess whether or not the concept of retirement will exist, you are 47, 48 years old this year, thereabouts. Yes, 47. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. Oh, of course, yes. Well, one does this. Um, do you see yourself ever retiring as an economist? As somebody who, you know, you've been very successful, you have multiple books, you are sought after as a communicator on, on economy and money. But for many people in the UK, retirement is almost an entitlement. And I wonder if somebody of your generation and younger generations has got the same luxury of certainty when it comes to retirement. Well, the luxury that I have is I love my job. I love what I do. Useful, it, it? Yeah. It's always, it's really useful. It's always changing. I'm always learning new things. And so that's a tremendous privilege. And I, I imagine that at some stage I'll want to pull back a little bit and do a little bit less and a little bit less and a little bit less. Um, but of course, we don't necessarily get to choose our own fates. It could be that um, nobody's very interested in what I have to say in 10 years time or in 20 years time. But certainly in an ideal world, I would keep doing a little bit of, of what I do because I love what I do. Uh, financially, retirement isn't that complicated. <laughs> you have to put aside enough money. Uh, it, it's, it's difficult because it's difficult to save that amount of money. It's difficult to make sure that you've got enough. But I don't think it's complicated. I think we often overcomplicate the basic problem. 
But the, the biggest problem, of course, is I think there's a retirement crisis brewing in the world because most people don't put away enough. We're in a very consumerist society. Um, we're in a society that rewards the here and now more than it rewards the long term. Would you agree? Uh, I don't know about society, but certainly people have always loved the here and now. Uh, we're, we're definitely hardwired to, to, to favor that juicy steak now rather than the juicy steak tomorrow. Some of, I may, some I of may the not have teeth. That, I may not have teeth tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> the juicy steak exactly. must become now, yes. Well, what, what is that old, that old proverb? A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. That's, yep. That is how we think. Now, there's a wonderful study that I write about in one of my earlier books, the, the Logic of Life, where I talk about people being offered the, this is back in the days when Netflix would post a DVD to you. Yeah. And so the, your Netflix queue, you'd have to pre-plan. And what, what they observed was people would, would keep shifting the, uh, the serious art films down in the Netflix queue. Uh, so they'd want to see uh, Kieslowski's Three Colors Red, or they'd want to see Schindler's List. But, it, but not, not next. The next um, thick film in the queue would always be Fast and Furious or American Pie or something like that. And so the, the experimenters actually looked into this and they found, found that if they gave people the chance to pick a film in advance, they'd pick something serious. And then if they offered them the chance to swap at the last minute, people would think, oh, what was I thinking? Of course, I want to see Mrs. Doubtfire. I want to see a, a, a fun Robin Williams comedy. I don't want to you know, I don't want to see Schindler's List. That's far too serious. And so we're always uh, virtue tomorrow and pleasure today. And that's, that's very human. And it's true for food. It's true for movies. And of course, it's true for pensions as well. And I'm no different. But of course, you have to, at a certain point, you have to sort of plan and try and commit yourself to save enough. How do you overcome that short-termism? How do we develop enough future, uh, faith in the future to take that long-term view? Well, there are a couple of ways you can do it. One is to just say to yourself, I'm going to make it automatic. So I don't constantly have to fight this battle with myself. So along with the not, not trying to pick clever stocks and along with the just put a little bit of money in every month so you don't try and time the market. The other reason why that's sensible is you can say, well, I'm going to make a direct transfer from my bank account every month into, an, into a retirement savings account set it up once. I only need to have strong willpower once and then I never need to think about it again. <laughs> and you know, there's, I think there's a lot to be said for that. And some of the most successful retirement savings approaches, made, I mean, made famous by Richard Thaler and Shlomo Bernazzi. Uh, Thaler is co-author of the book Nudge and, and the Nobel Prize winner mm. in economics. They, they, their theory is, um, or their, their policy is called Save More Tomorrow. So they get people to sign up to transfer money to retirement savings, not now, but next time they get a pay rise. The pay rise will go into their retirement savings. It works very well because the moment of pain is postponed. Fantastic. Tim Harford on The Money Show this evening. And what a legend Tim Harford is. And very generous with his time. And I'm looking forward to chatting to him again. Hint, hint, producers in the not too distant future. But yeah, Tim Harford has got multiple arrows in his expansive quiver. He's an economist, a journalist, a broadcaster, the author of multiple books, including a fabulous book called Messy. But he is most famous for his first book, The Undercover Economist, a senior columnist at the Financial Times. He presents a radio show on Radio 4 in the UK called More or Less, which is 
lovely. Um, and 50 Things That Made the Modern Economy turned that book into a podcast. And it was a wonderful brand extension, if you like. And uh, he's spoken to Ted. He's a very accomplished individual. And he gave us some of his time earlier this year. And that's a replay of an interview we did a little earlier this year.